Welcome to another podcast from School of Surgery. I'm here today with Brett Dolman, uh, who uh, I work with and has got a, a very, uh, a very uh, strong background in statistics and particularly systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, so uh, welcome, Brett. Thanks for coming. Hello, thank you. Um, so today, meta-analysis is one of these things that uh, are taken as a last word in truth when it comes to research and, uh, and everybody looks at these and decides and changes their practice or quotes them at each other. But I think they're probably quite poorly understood uh, things, and uh, and it's important that everybody knows how to look at a meta-analysis rather than just a lozenge and see which side of the line it is. Is actually be able to understand it properly and all the strengths and weaknesses. So um, hopefully today uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk around that. Is that right? Yep, that's fine. So yes, as as Mr. Lund said, we're going to discuss today systematic reviews and and meta-analyses, and we're going to start from um, basic concepts and try to explain all of the advantages and disadvantages of, of systematic reviews and meta-analyses which should help you in your future practice when appraising papers. And the exams. And the exams, <laughs> of course. So the learning objectives, we're going to discuss the advantages and disadvantages of systematic reviews and, and meta-analyses and I think this is a, a key point because meta-analyses are often considered at the, the top of the hierarchy of evidence, um, however current thinking's shifting that slightly. We're going to talk a bit about the, the key concepts when you come to look at meta-analyses in published journals and how you can appraise those papers. We're going to look a bit at basic plots, so forest plots, funnel plots and bubble plots. We'll discuss them and what they mean and what you can glean from, from these plots. Finally, we're going to discuss the stages of meta-analysis. So meta-analyses are actually a good thing to get involved with if you want an introduction to research because they're very flexible around your clinical duties and if done with somebody who, who understands them, they're, they're a good way to get an appreciation of how research works and how to appraise research. Mm -hmm. So let's just look at some definitions first. So referring to a systematic review, a systematic review is a systematic search for all available studies to answer a particular clinical question. Now, the important aspects of this statement is systematic. So the search that you do needs to be systematic and it needs to be reproducible. And quite often you'll be expected to include search strategies, including what journals you looked for studies under, and it needs to be replicated by people in the future. So, so give us an example of that then. So you, you see all these things and they have, uh, so what, what's, what, how do you have a search strategy? What would, you, what would you write down when you write down a bit of paper first? So what I, what I would recommend first, actually, is most hospitals have a good library and a good clinical librarian who can introduce you to how search terms work. So we've all heard of, of Medline, PubMed, as, yeah. a, as a journal database, and there's various ways you can search for studies. And what you would do is you would base that on your clinical question. So this is often expressed in the PICO format. Mm -hmm. So you would first state your participants, so who you would want included in the studies, the intervention you're looking at and the comparison as well and you also want to look at particular outcomes and that's how you would structure your clinical question and you would then use particular search terms based on that those clinic mm -hmm. those pico formats so you start with a question what you want to know the answer yeah. to so let's take an example so uh, you and i recently wrote together uh, a, a meta-analysis or a systematic review, in fact, wasn't it, of uh, treatment pyonidal sinus. Yeah. So how, how did we do it? We, we said we wanted to know the effect of fibrin glue in pyonidal sinus, didn't we? So what, what, what terms did we use so, to search and how did we do that? 
so you would use the intervention there. So fibrin glue was the intervention we looked at there. So you could look at that both as a keyword and you can also explode particular terms that have other related terms but again I would I'd speak to a clinical librarian on how to do that exactly yeah. and they can construct a very good search strategy for you and then once you understand in more detail what the particular terms mean and how they link together then mm. that's something you can take on yourself but it's it's a good skill to get used to not just for systematic reviews but for when you want to research a particular mm. clinical question that's related to your clinical practice um, so I, I would recommend that. Yeah, so you've got to think of, you so you call it pyonidal sinus and you call it pyonidal cyst mm. and all the other words that you can diagnoses and operation and surgery and intervention and treatment and have all these things and the librarian can help you string those together in various ands and nots and ors <clears throat> and phrases in brackets and in, and inverted commas etc. And that's the important thing. So you, get, you actually get what you want to see and then that generates a huge amount of uh, well, depends on the field, I suppose, but the, 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 the initial data set of papers you want to start to have a look at. Is that right? Yeah, and for example, if you're looking for fibre and glue, what we had to do is make sure we captured brand names as well as the generic term for the, the drug because some studies might just quote a particular <coughs> brand name if funded by that particular um, pharmaceutical company. So you need to take all of that into account when looking at all the various so aspects. Casting it wide to start with. Exactly, exactly. See what comes back and you can always refine it a bit closer or again go back to the clinical librarian and say you want a bit more of a sensitive search or mm. specific search based on that. So next definition is for a meta-analysis. So a meta-analysis is the statistical pooling of results from all of the included studies you've identified during your systematic review. Now the decision of whether to do a meta-analysis has to be taken on the basis of the studies you've got in front of you. If the studies you have in front of you are too different, then it might not be appropriate to pull these. Mm -hmm. And I think the temptation is that everybody likes a nice forest plot and they'll try mm -hmm. and pull together lots of studies performed in different ways in different populations that just aren't comparable. And therefore, this needs to be considered before you perform a meta-analysis. Okay. So fundamentally, the difference between a systematic review and a meta-analysis is the statistical pooling so you get you do you do literature search sort out what the everything you want to include and exclude because of the criteria you've previously agreed and then in a meta-analysis you'll do some stats which we'll come on to talk about uh, after this can you only include uh, randomized controlled trials in a meta-analysis I think it depends on what you're looking at so for example if you're looking at an intervention you want to know the most kind of robust study to assess that intervention, you would ideally want to include randomised control trials. However, if you're looking at, say, a surgical procedure and you want to know outcomes such as long-term recurrence, quite often the best studies in order to measure that are observational studies. And in fact, some of the, the best systematic reviews and meta-analyses have actually pulled together both randomised control trials to assess short-term outcomes and then for longer-term outcomes such as long-term recurrence use large observational studies and they can often work well together but ideally the most suitable study to assess an intervention would be a randomized controlled trial. Okay, thanks. So advantages of systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Firstly by increasing the number of participants within a particular analysis you increase power 
And what that means is it increases your ability to detect a statistically significant difference between the groups if, if one should exist. And we'll see quite a nice example of a forest plot where we've done the analysis and in, increased the power, and that's come up with a conclusion that wasn't really apparent in the individual studies. Mm. Secondly, meta-analyses can look at studies performed in different clinical populations to see whether there's consistency. For example, you might read a study in the British Journal of Surgery which might show some nice results from a particular surgical procedure. However, that might just be one of a whole range of studies that have been done in perhaps different clinical populations and you might not see that effect in, in other populations. Mm -hmm. And a meta-analysis is a good way to evaluate whether there is consistency across clinical populations. Thirdly, one part of meta-analysis that's often overlooked and is actually poorly done is you can actually look at the studies you've included within the meta-analysis and you can investigate whether perhaps if they would, the intervention was delivered in a different way and the classic example in medical studies would be dose of a medication. And what you can then do is investigate whether the effects in each individual study differ based on the dose of the say analgesic that's used <coughs> within those studies and that's quite an important aspect of meta-analyses that's often overlooked and we'll talk about that later. Okay. And finally, systematic reviews by their very nature include all available evidence rather than cherry-picking of evidence. So we've discussed a bit about if you find, come across a paper in British Journal of Surgery and it shows a, a nice significant effect on the intervention you're evaluating then that could just be because it was a novel interesting finding that was in one of the leading journals there may be other evidence out there that's in the lesser journals that shows negative or non-beneficial yeah. um, results from an intervention so so i'm going to come on to the disadvantages about meta-analyses and again these are often overlooked and um, often if you read traditional textbooks on clinical research you find that meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials are at the peak of the hierarchy of evidence, when in fact there's many disadvantages associated with meta-analyses that actually, que I would question whether this is actually appropriate. Mm. So there was an interesting study done in the past couple of months in the British Journal of Anesthesia, and this looked at 16 interventions with over 100 endpoints, and it looked at whether meta-analyses could predict statistically significant results in large randomised control trials. Mm -hmm. And it found that meta-analyses only had a sensitivity of 42% and a specificity of 70% um, for predicting significant results in large randomised control trials, which mm -hmm. essentially means only 42% of the statistically significant results in meta-analyses were later found to be statistically significant in large randomised control trials. Mm -hmm. And indeed, there's been other research in more general fields which has shown that um, the, the agreement between meta-analyses and large randomised controlled trials is poor. Mm. And this is often cited to be because of something called publication bias, which we will discuss mm. later. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a noise inherent in smaller trials which you add up to make more noise. <clears throat> and so, so, I mean, so the best thing really would be an RCT that's large enough to answer the question but of course, the problem is is funding one RCTs that's large enough to do that, or preferably two. That's what drug administrations often want: is it two large um, RCTs? And so it's probably a way of getting around, you know, not having to have ten thousand people in a particular trial. 
but you have to but that's important isn't it everyone thinks that because it's where it is and that's that's it that's the conversation over yeah i would certainly say the optimum method to assess any intervention is a large randomized control trial yeah, and big Be- enough exactly yeah. exactly and we'll discuss a bit later all of the disadvantages associated with with meta-analyses and all of these kind of add up to um, quite unreliable method to predict results in these later large randomized control trials mm-hmm. and certainly within the field of anesthesia there's a major push towards trying to get these large multi-center multinational trials that have have shown very different results to preceding meta-analyses mm-hmm. and 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 this is important because it could lead to interventions being used that are either harmful or not beneficial mm-hmm. And the classic example of that was antiarrhythmics in myocardial infarction. So everyone thought that antiarrhythmics were great and that they worked in acute myocardial infarction. And meta-analyses had shown that there was a beneficial effect of antiarrhythmics in myocardial infarction. But when they later did the large randomised controlled trials, it was actually found to be harmful. Mm. And again, this was thought to be the the various limitations of meta-analyses. So... How I'm going to focus on the limitations of meta-analyses is to think of them in terms of a grading system, which is conveniently titled GRADE, which is a criteria that's used in Cochrane reviews. And it looks at five different limitations of of meta-analyses and downgrades evidence based on this. So the first assumption is that evidence derived from a meta-analysis of randomised control trials is high quality evidence. And based on the presence of any one of these limitations, it can be downgraded to either moderate, low or very low quality. So I would suggest when looking at meta-analyses in the future, and particularly Cochrane reviews, if you look at the quality of evidence quoted, you'll get a better idea of how reliable the results are from that particular meta-analysis. So what will will you see in the text when you're reading it? So the way it works in Cochrane, it will say, usually with the outcome, it will have a, usually it's by the actual result, it will say Mm. high quality, moderate quality, low quality, or very low quality evidence. Mm. And this is usually within the abstract of Cochrane, and that's part of the reporting standard, so it should be Mm. within the abstract. So you'll get an idea from from the actual abstract itself whether that Mm. evidence is high, moderate, or... And and, and in in things that haven't gone through Cochrane, so meta-analyses that have been produced... For, uh, and just published in a journal, um, will it will it tend to have these? Because I, I haven't seen it too much, I don't think, in non-Cochrane ones. It, it's less often used. Yeah. So this has been developed over the last, I think, decade or so, mm. and it's starting to filter through. So I've certainly seen some journals require you to use this mm. grading of evidence, but I think it's, it's essential, and I think, like most things, it takes a bit of time to filter through to mm. the academic community. But I think that this... As time goes on, I think more journals will want to adhere to Cochrane standards. And so when you're looking at, looking at meta-analysis, is it a quality marker, really, isn't it? If you, if you can see the this grade criteria used in, in the text, then you can think, well, this is probably a, a better-done meta-analysis than one that doesn't. Yes, certainly. And, and within the text itself, they often have um, tables with mm. this in, which will list each individual outcome, and it will say what the quality is, and it will say why it was downgraded. So the actual... Cochrane reviews themselves have got quite clear mm. tables and quite often the, the the table for the major outcome will be very early on mm. in the review itself so you can get a good idea of the quality of evidence from that. 
So the first thing I'm going to come to is risk of bias, which bias is essentially any deviation away from the true underlying value. And the, the kind of really basic way to think about bias is the kind of lay term of a bias referee in football, in that if you have a bias referee in football and they give lots of penalties to the team that they're favouring, it might deviate the result away from what the true result would have been. Mm -hmm. And that's just a way to think of bias. Um, and essentially this is because any meta-analysis is only ever as good as the trials it includes. So if you've got a meta-analysis that includes lots of poorly conducted studies, the results become a lot less reliable than one that includes maybe larger, better performed studies mm -hmm. that are free of bias. Now, the gold standard in order to undertake this is to use something called the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool. And this has many advantages over traditionally used scales, such as the JADAD scale and things like that, which I won't go into now, but this has certainly been accepted widely by the academic community mm -hmm. that this is the most appropriate tool to use. And it essentially allocates different scores to each domain of um, bias. So low risk of bias is often reported in green in mm -hmm. the risk of bias summary. If there's unclear risk of bias, this will appear as yellow. Now, unclear risk of bias is where there's not enough information within the text of the study to be able to determine whether it's low or high risk of bias. Mm -hmm. So, for example, they might not explain how they randomised participants. They might just say, we randomised 200 people too, mm -hmm. rather than explain the method for which they performed that randomization. In that case, you would have to say that that's unclear. Mm. Now, clearly within the unclear element, you can have low and high risk of bias, but it's it's important to, to quantify it in that nature rather than consider all poorly reported trials as being at high risk, which is what was traditionally mm. done with the old scales. And then finally, high risk of bias would appear as red in the risk of bias mm. summary. Now, there's various domains of um, internal validity risk of bias which are assessed by the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool. The first one is randomization. Mm -hmm. So randomization is, were the patients truly, did they truly have an equal chance of being allocated to each group? So, for example, some studies would be low risk of bias if they use computer-generated randomization, whereas they would receive high risk if they allocated people on their date of birth or their hospital number because that might not be truly. Mm. The next one is allocation concealment, which just means that can the people who are recruiting the participants foresee which group they're going to be allocated to? And the example I would give is if I'm recruiting patients for a surgical study and I've got this exciting new surgical technique and I know that the next participant that walks through that door is going to be going in my exciting new ex surgical technique mm -hmm. and a, a frail patient with dementia walks in who fits the inclusion criteria but I don't think it's going to perform mm. very well within the trial then I might not recruit that participant yeah. and that creates a lot of mm. bias within the process and this is actually a very under-considered thing and it's been shown in studies that this um, is responsible for major differences between study results mm. in how how allocation was concealed and blinding will be a bit more familiar to to listeners in that it's whether participants or people who were conducting the study knew which group the participant was allocated to. Now, this is actually quite difficult to do in surgical studies if you're studying very different techniques because 
quite often obviously the surgeon's going to know mm. which group they were in um, but it's important to if that isn't possible is to try and blind outcome assessment mm. so whoever's assessing those outcomes post-operatively doesn't really know what group they're in but again this might be difficult mm. if they've got dressings and surgical scars yeah so in in the uh, uh, famous laparoscopic cholecystectomy randomized trial against open uh, that uh, all the all the patients had uh, dressings on some of which were sham dressings so they put the put a big dressing in the right hypochondrium for the ones that had a lap curly also and uh, and drop a little bit of blood on it in theatre so they all look the same so to blind the assessor exactly and that, i'm sure there's lots of inventive ways you could come mm. up with to blind things but as much as possible it should always be it should always be attempted because it helps reduce bias um, attrition bias is essentially participants who were lost to follow up so for example if we randomized 200 people to one surgical technique versus another and then post-operatively we excluded maybe 20% of our intervention group for some reason that could be related to outcome then that would bias the results because we wouldn't get a representative sample which is why a lot of randomized control trials will push for you to do something called intention to treat analysis where you you analyse all the participants who were initially randomised regardless of whether they received the intervention or received less of the intervention. Mm. Um, selective outcome reporting, that's essentially it's similar to publication bias, but sometimes investigators will set out to measure a particular set of outcomes, and then because a couple of them aren't statistically significant, they won't report this fully in the final um, manuscript which means it remains hidden mm. and that contributes again to publication bias which we mm. will talk about later. And so all good trials will have their protocols published on uh, on um, clinicaltrials.gov or a similar website so you can see what before they finish what they were trying to show what their endpoints were. Yes exactly and the, the whole push towards trial registration if, if people out there have conducted um, trials themselves they'll notice that there's a been a big push over the last decade to get randomised controlled trials registered and this is for two reasons. First reason is because of selective outcome reporting. It prevents people from changing their primary outcomes based on statistical significance rather than what their initial primary outcome was. And The second reason is it allows people who conduct systematic reviews and meta-analyses to track down trials that might not have been published mm. but have been completed so that they can use that data in order to reduce publication mm. bias, which again we'll talk about later. And finally, there's a category for other bias. So this might be imbalances in baseline characteristics. For example, purely by chance, one group might be 20 years younger than the other group and this particularly affects smaller trials. So I've just got an example here of two risk of bias summaries from two meta-analyses and we can see on the left hand side that the studies are listed in the rows column and the columns here are the different domains of risk of bias which we've just discussed and the same on this side as well. And we can get a feel for the meta-analysis on the left, the included studies are at higher risk of bias compared to the ones on the right-hand side. So we can see a lot more high-risk elements here, mainly because it involves the blinding of participants, which mm. was difficult within this surgical study. And here we've got one looking at post-operative analgesics, and we can see that generally there's a better quality of trials included here, and therefore 
could be deemed as slightly more reliable than mm. the, the meta-analysis on the left. So when you're looking at a, a systematic review meta-analysis, seeing one of these tables is in a, another quality indicator. Yeah, exactly. This will give you a summary of the quality of the trials that are included within that meta-analysis. But, but of the meta-analysis as well. So if you see one of these, they're, they're doing the right thing. Yes. And they're, they're, they're being very, very transparent about how they got to the final result. Exactly. Yeah. So the second thing to consider within the limitations of meta-analyses is, is directness of evidence. And this is quite a simple concept, and it just means can... I apply the findings of this particular review to the patients I have in front of me. And quite often this can be assessed from the characteristics of included studies, which will be in most meta-analyses, which will list both characteristics of the participants who are included, for example, what age they are, what sex they are, what particular condition they had, as well as different bits of information about the intervention and the comparison. And that will allow you to look at that group of trials and say, can I apply that to the population of patients I have mm -hmm. in front of me? And a very simple way of thinking about that is, if all studies were performed in men, can you apply these results to women? So we're going to talk a bit about heterogeneity now. Now this is a quite confusing topic and people do get confused between the different aspects of this. So I'm going to try and break it down into um, quite simple language and hopefully make this understandable. So you're going to define heterogeneity for us first? Yes, so there's heterogeneity is not really a universal term in that it's broken down into two separate definitions. So the first thing would be clinical heterogeneity. Yeah. So clinical heterogeneity just relates to differences in the individual trials themselves. So again, that would be similar to what we spoke about previously. Differences in participants, differences in the way the intervention was delivered. You know, in surgical studies, was it an open? Do some include open procedures? Do some include laparoscopic procedures? So that can be determined from the characteristics of included studies. The next term is statistical heterogeneity, and this is explaining the differences between study in statistical terms. And all it means is, it means that do the studies differ? by more than would be expected by chance. Mm -hmm. So if we took a sample of different people from a particular population, we would expect those results to vary by a certain degree simply because we are drawing different samples from the same population. Mm -hmm. However, there may be other differences between the studies, such as clinical heterogeneity, which we've discussed, mm -hmm. as well as different methodological limitations so we've spoke a bit about risk of bias and that can also create differences between the studies mm. and statistical heterogeneity will quantify that and quite often an easy way to look for statistical heterogeneity is to look at the forest plot and we'll have a look at an example of that okay. in a second now statistically this is often expressed by something called the i squared statistic so this is this gives the percentage of variability that's due to differences between the studies rather than sampling variance. Mm -hmm. So we spoke about sampling variance. So a high value in the I-squared statistic, which ranges from 1 to 100, mm. tells you that there is a lot of statistical heterogeneity there. Mm. So, and, and that's uh, always on the, on the, we'll have a look, look at one in a minute, I, I know, but uh, always on next to the forest plot, the I-squared statistic. And I think there's people just ignore that and don't look at it. When do you start to have to exercise a lot more caution 
when they, with the eye squared statistic. When when's, when's what's a you know, what, well, what's a good one and what's a a bad one? So people use different cutoff terms, and the Cochrane manual uses quite broad cutoff terms for different. Um, degrees of heterogeneity but a lot of them overlap as well so quite often authors will often pick their own reasons for choosing a particular value so they might say that 50% is Mm. evidence of statistical heterogeneity but I would say with like most statistics you have to you have to take it in context now clearly anything above 50 is you know good evidence for statistical heterogeneity but even if you're about 30% you need to consider are these um, studies quite a bit different from each other mm. so traditionally I would say 50% is used as a cutoff mm. but like most things it's it has to be taken in context. Yeah. So I'm looking at uh, looking at a meta-analysis and this happens a lot in surgery and the, the, the lozenge is quite clearly on one side of the line and then I should look at the I-squared statistic and the I-squared statistic says 10% I think well I can have a lot of confidence that that is exactly what's going on and I should have a lot of confidence in that treatment being better than the other treatments Whereas if I look at it and it says the I-squared statistic is 90%, I can say, well, that's kind of okay, but I'm not so sure that that lozenge, that lozenge could move around quite a lot if there's a 90% statistical heterogeneity in there. So there's a lot of bias inherent in that. So people should have a look at lozenge and have a look at the I-squared statistic next. Is that right? Yeah, and in any meta-analysis that's got a high I-squared value, so if there's a large degree of statistical heterogeneity, if they've used a random effects model, which again we'll talk about later, it will actually uh, it will penalise that heterogeneity and it will actually broaden the confidence intervals mm. as well. So that will be inherent within the model itself. Mm. And essentially, you have to say that if, if there's a lot of heterogeneity there, we lose a bit of confidence in the underlying results because it doesn't look like the studies are assessing one true underlying effect. Mm. And we'll talk a bit more so about that later. So comparing apples and pears and... A full transit. Yes, exactly. So what we're going to look at here is an example of a forest plot, which I'm sure most people are familiar with and have seen within previous publications or probably more likely within exams. But what we've got here is on the left-hand side, this is the list of the individual studies included within the meta-analysis. And here we have the intervention group. In this case, we're looking at when paracetamol's administered, and this was before surgery, this is our intervention group. And this will give you a breakdown of your statistics, so your mean, your standard deviation, and the total number of participants within that study. Here we have our comparison group, which again lists our opioid usage postoperatively in our post-incision group, and this will give the mean, standard deviation, and total. The weight here is just the basically the amount of information that that particular study is contributing to the overall result and it's often expressed as a percentage and that's essentially due to how many participants are in the study mm. and so the, the variability. The, the greater the weight and yeah. Yeah we'll talk a bit more about the models a bit later but how that weight is distributed slightly different between fixed effects and random effects models. Right. Now we can see this bit on the right hand side so this is our kind of graphical part of the forest plot. And this, that chart is called the forest plot? Yes. Yeah. Um, so here we've got the results from each individual study. So the small green dot here, that's the difference in means between the two groups within each study. Mm-hmm. And the black line corresponds to the 95% confidence interval in this case, which should be stated at the 
the top of the forest plot which it is here. Now we can see from this forest plot that all of these 95% confidence intervals don't seem to overlap very well. Mm -hmm. They're quite variable as are the difference in means in each of the individual studies and instantly we can look at that there and think there's probably quite a bit of statistical heterogeneity yeah. there because it seems like the studies differ by more than would be expected by chance and thinking of it by that way if if it was not varying by more than chance you would expect confidence intervals to overlap with each yes. other in this case they don't and we can see at the bottom this is the pooled result here from all of the included studies now in actual fact the black diamond there that the top and bottom of the black diamond correspond to the difference in means mm -hmm. and the end of each part of the diamond corresponds to the 95% confidence interval. Mm. And it might be a bit difficult to appreciate on this particular case, but here we're using a random effects model. Mm. And what that does is it penalizes this heterogeneity. So in actual fact, that confidence interval is actually quite broad for mm. the pooling and all of those results. And that's because the random effects model will penalize that heterogeneity. Okay. And we can see at the bottom there, we have an I squared value of 79%. Which is bad. Yeah, mm. that that would be regarded as high. And we already had a bit of an idea that that was going to be the case when we looked at these studies and saw that the confidence intervals are quite scattered around and that's a good indication that there's likely to be statistical heterogeneity. So when you look at that black diamond, that lozenge there, then it, it's good to be as small as possible. Exactly, and that would give you a more precise result and you mm. can have more confidence that the result is somewhere around the mm. result in our actual individual meta-analysis. I've often wondered, so that uh, on the x-axis, 0, minus 1, minus 2, etc., what do those numbers actually mean? So they would correspond to the particular, and we call these effect estimate, that we would use within that particular analysis. Now this varies depending on what you measure in, whether it's a kind of binary outcome or whether it's a continuous outcome, such as means and standard deviations. So in this particular example, it's the standardised mean difference. And what the standardised mean difference allows you to do is combine different measurements of, of different things into one analysis. Mm. So what we're actually looking at here is a forest plot of different opioids. So some of these studies have used morphine and some of them have used tramadol. Mm. And what a standardised mean difference allows us to do is to combine those all into one analysis because it standardizes them by dividing them by their standard deviation. Mm -hmm. More commonly for continuous outcomes, you would see a mean difference, which is more correctly called a difference in means, where you will just take the mean value of the same thing mm. and then look at the difference between the means of both groups. Mm. For binary outcomes, this is often expressed by either an odds ratio or a risk ratio. The more appropriate one would be a risk ratio, and that would just be your ratio of risk in both groups, mm. which would just be your events divided by your total number of participants, and that would give you risk, and then you just look at the ratio between the two groups. And we can see an example here of the risk ratio, so this would be a, what we're measuring here is post-operative vomiting, mm -hmm. so this would be a yes-no outcome, so this is expressed as a, a risk ratio, and again we've got a similar setup with studies on the left-hand side, the events and total number of participants in our intervention and again in our comparison. And here we've got the results from each individual study. And what we can see here is that 
both the average effects and the 95% confidence intervals overlap quite nicely. Mm. So there's quite a lot of overlap between all of them. And I think we can appreciate that most of these results seem to be pretty similar. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we would expect that there to be low levels of statistical heterogeneity Mm -hmm. in these studies. Now, I think another thing to appreciate here is, as we discussed earlier, the advantages with meta-analyses over individual trials. Now, the bit I'll come to is here in the forest plot. So this risk ratio of 1, if the confidence interval crosses that point, that's equivalent to results being not statistically significant Mm. at the level of p equals 0.05. So what we can see is that each individual trial, apart from 1, all had results that weren't statistically significant in the original studies themselves. However, it was likely that these studies were small enough that they weren't really powered to detect outcomes in a binary outcome such as post-operative vomiting. But by performing a meta-analysis and getting our overall result at the bottom here, Mm. then we can see that that's actually identified a statistically significant difference between Mm. the groups because the confidence interval doesn't overlap the the one. Okay, so I mean that's really interesting. So you can see the I squared there and you can, just to go over, you can see that all those, despite the... um, the confidence intervals being wider or narrower, that they all stack up pretty much on top of each other, yeah. like stacking plates. And then the other thing, of course, is that the size of the square equates to the weight of the study. Is that right? That's correct, yes. So that, so you can see that represented as well. Rather than just looking at the figures, you can see that represented visually in the, in the forest plot as well. Exactly, and we can see that particular study has the characteristics we would expect of a study that would have more weight in that it's got 200 participants as opposed to the other ones that have got around 60. Yeah. So we can see how the number of participants, the larger trials, will contribute more information than the smaller trials. Mm-hmm. So this is the important part I come to with statistical heterogeneity. And that is, quite often in meta-analyses, people will leave their analysis at this point. They'll say, well, I've identified statistical heterogeneity. My job's done. That's it. It's fine. But... One thing I think there's a move towards over the last decade and something which I think is essential in any meta-analysis is to investigate this heterogeneity because an important clinical question is, well, why do these studies differ from each other? Because there might be an important reason, we've discussed earlier, dose of a particular medication. There might be important information within that that we want to identify. Mm. Now, this is either performed using subgroup analysis or meta-regression analysis. So subgroup analysis, you might break your studies into subgroups of, say, one dose gave 300 milligrams and the other studies gave 600. You would put those into subgroups and you can then compare them each other and that will give you a p-value to Mm. say whether they are significantly different from each other. But probably a more useful way of doing this is through something called meta-regression analysis. So this is similar to a traditional regression except instead of using the participant as the unit of analysis, it uses the study. Mm. So we would put the study into the the meta-regression and we would say that this study had a dose of 100, this one of 200, this one of 600, and it would then do a regression and it would give you something called the R-squared analogue, which will tell you the percentage of heterogeneity explained by your model. Mm. And you can actually put multiple independent variables within that So you could look at um, dose of the medication, whether it was given pre- or post-operatively, 
look at various factors and you might find that you're able to explain a high percentage of that heterogeneity and that can give you useful information mm. about where the intervention may work better mm. than um, other situations and I think clinically that's that's an important thing to do although it should be regarded as high. So, so using your drug example it'll give us it'll tell us how important is the drug dose variation in the overall outcome exactly so if you've got results that vary by a lot and you then put drug dose into that as an independent variable if you've got a nice significant regression thing there you might be able to infer that actually using this medication at a higher dosage is going to make it more effective than mm. using it at a lower dosage mm. without having that information from the individual trials themselves mm. and i think these analyses should be regarded as as hypothesis generating and clearly should be pre-stated in a, a protocol which again should accompany most reviews simply because what you don't want is people going fishing for lots of different differences looking at ludicrous variables and finding one that's mm. statistically significant and you end up with a lot of false positives and it just creates problems so when you're planning your review think carefully about things that could affect the results in each individual trial and pre-state what you're going to do before so again when you're reading a meta-analysis a, a very very clear plan that's made before the actual analysis is done is another marker of quality of the uh, of the of the uh, meta-analysis that you're reading exactly and we'll we'll discuss that a bit later when we come to the stages of a systematic review and meta-analysis so what i've got here is an example of a meta-regression plot it's sometimes called a bubble plot for a bit more obvious reasons than yes. the forest plots. <laughs> so what we have here is along the x-axis is we have our independent variable. So this is the thing we think that might change the results from each individual trial. So the dose example we used previously would go on this axis. Mm -hmm. And then in this particular example, we're looking at post-operative analgesics. And we're looking at the amount of morphine used in the control group as a marker for how painful the procedure is. Along the y-axis here we have the mean difference or more correctly the difference in means from each individual trial. So that's the difference in morphine consumption in the first 24 hours between the intervention and the control group. Mm -hmm. And what we can see is quite a nice relationship between so the amount of morphine consumed by the control group in each individual study determined the degree of reduction in each individual trial. Mm. So for a study where participants were using about 90 milligrams of morphine, there was a 40 milligram reduction, whereas we can look a bit further up here, and if they were using about 10 milligrams, then they'd only get about a five mm. reduction there. And what that can reveal is quite important relationships or situations where that particular agent might be more effective. This can reveal quite nice relationships. It's not definitive, but it's it's an extra thing you can get from meta-analysis and it's hypothesis generating and then you may want to test these in further trials. So the dose example, you could then do large clinical trials where you compare different dose subgroups mm. and mm. see whether that makes an, any difference. And just to note, the size of the bubbles on this plot are related to the, the percentage weight, essentially, they have within the meta-analysis. Yeah. So the larger studies will appear as larger bubbles. Right. So we've touched a little bit about different models when it comes to heterogeneity. And I just wanted to clear up a, a quite common misconception within meta-analyses. So the models essentially just explain the 
the statistical assumptions of the pooling of results that, that you're undertaking. Mm. So there's two main types of models that you would use. The first one being the fixed effects model. Now, the fixed effects model assumes that you're assessing only one true underlying effect. Mm. So if you had lots of studies that were conducted in exactly the same population, exactly the same dose of the medication, um, outcomes were measured in the same way, and all trials were conducted in the same way, then you could use the fixed effects model. But it's actually quite rare in meta-analyses, and in actual fact, more commonly is the random effects model. And that random effects model assumes that you're measuring different underlying effects in the trials you're including. And it's a more common situation, and again, the random effects model will penalise confidence intervals in the presence of high statistical heterogeneity. Mm. And I tried to touch on a bit of an example of that earlier. So if you've got a lot of statistical heterogeneity, then the random effects model will broaden the confidence intervals to reflect that uncertainty. And quite often review authors will state that their choice of model was made on the basis of the I-squared value, but it should never be made on the basis of the I-squared model. So the thing you'll commonly see within publications is we found evidence of statistical heterogeneity mm. I-squared of 70, we therefore use the random effects model. Mm. But in actual fact, the use of the model depends on the underlying assumptions of the model, which we've stated here, rather than basing it purely on the I-squared value. So the next thing I want to talk about is precision. So precision merely relates to the width of the confidence intervals. Now, if you've got a meta-analysis of very few studies, or particularly for dichotomous outcomes, we've looked at post-operative vomiting, that would be an example, either yes or no, then a lack of precision can create uncertainty within the results. So, for example, if we had a meta-analysis that had a risk ratio of 2, and the confidence interval was from 0.41 to 9.71, we can see that there's a broad range of results mm. that could be encompassed within that risk ratio and therefore we can't really be that confident about the results we've got from our meta-analysis because those results range from a you know, 60% reduction mm. to a nine times increase which is a massive variation mm. in the results mm. and although results closer to a risk ratio of two are more likely it's still so spread out that we can't really mm. be reliable. Now if we look at the opposing example if a confidence interval ranges from 1.8 to 2.2 with a risk ratio of 2, we can be reasonably confident that the results are close to our overall effect we found in the meta-analysis. And just as a general rule, if you've got more participants, um, less variance for continuous outcomes, or lots of heterogene less heterogeneity, then your results are going to be more precise. Mm. So if this goes across one, then the, the effect can either, the, the treatment can either make it worse or better, and so you're not going to have much confidence in that because it, it could have gone either way. And so if it's it's either the the conf uh, these uh, these confidence are either or both ends of them are more than one or both ends of them are less than one, uh, then that will give you more. You know, everything's heading in the same direction. Is that? Yeah, exactly. So we can see from the first example that that 0.41. If something can either make things better or worse, mm. we we don't really have yeah. much certainty in what that intervention is going to do. Yeah. So you would treat that with, with yeah. a lot of caution. And remember what we said when we looked at the forest plot, because that crosses one, so anything that crosses a risk ratio of one, 
would be equivalent to something that's not statistically significant. Yeah. So therefore, we couldn't yeah. have much confidence okay. in those So if results. it goes across one, so just, just a quick eyeball, if, if the confidence intervals go across the number one, yeah. then we don't have a lot of confidence in that study yeah. to directors or any change. It's yeah. not making anything different necessarily. So it would be one for risk ratios and odds ratios yeah. for continuous outcomes like mean difference in means. It would be across the zero. Across the zero, yeah. So finally, I'm just going to talk a bit about publication bias. So publication bias is due to the fact that studies are published based on their results being statistically significant, and they're also published, so they're more likely to be published, and they're published faster than mm. studies with negative results. Yep. And what this does is it creates bias because you get a pool of studies that aren't representative of all of the studies performed within the area, and this creates a lot of bias, and there's been quite large studies done in the past that have shown that the the main reason for differences between meta-analyses and large randomised controlled trials is because of publication bias. Yeah. Now, the best way to avoid this is, when you're doing your search strategy, is to not only look at your published databases like Medline and Embase and Central and things like that, you want to look for unpublished data. And the best way to do this is to as we've alluded to previously, is look at clinical trial databases. Conference proceedings are quite good because they'll often have studies that were maybe just published in abstract form or that haven't reached the final publication stage yet. Mm -hmm. And you can also look at what are called grey literature databases, which look at things like CCs and mm. various other um, what's called grey literature. And, that, and that's the best way to try and deal with publication bias. Mm. It's biased because the, you know a lot of these things aren't very interesting to read. Yeah. And from a journal point of view, they're probably not going to get cited. So there's no difference between this and this. It's not the not the exciting thing. Here's a new treatment for going to excite. So with impact factors driving stuff, there's not a not a great deal in it for journals on the whole. Exactly, and I think the reasons are quite multifaceted, mm. and they do come from both journals. So, again, like you said, journals are less keen to publish things that show negative results because they're not seed as, as interesting or as mm. citable as studies that have got exciting statistically significant mm. results and um, the other aspect is I think a lot of the time researchers you know they'll do their big study they'll find that there's no difference between the groups and they'll be like I don't want to publish that and it's mm. called the file draw problem because researchers will often just chuck it in the file drawer and not yeah. bother to publish it. Rewarded for positive outcomes I mean I suppose the, the other big thing of course it's quite controversial is pharmaceutical trials sponsored by pharmaceutical companies don't want to publish a trial that says that their, their what they thought was an innovative new drug is completely ineffective. Exactly. And they spent millions of dollars developing it and then suddenly something says it's you may as well have a smarty. And I think that's going to come out with the drive at the moment for I think it's Tamiflu. So they're trying to push to get the pharmaceutical company to release all of the data regarding Tamiflu because there's a worry that because of publication bias the effects of Tamiflu have been overestimated. Mm. And on that basis, the government's purchased hundreds of millions mm -hmm. of drugs that may not be as effective as they were originally thought to be. And I think there's so a... Allegedly at the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to add that. <laughs> a word from my lawyers, allegedly. <laughs> and um, as well as trying to avoid publication bias, which is, is by far the best way of doing it and by far the least likely to be done within a meta-analysis. And I've particularly looked at this recently, looked at about 100... Um, different reviews and found that less than 10% look at clinical trial databases, less than 10% look at 
conference proceedings and about one percent look at great literature sources so it's very poorly done out there so it's but it's an important thing to bear in mind because it's the only way you can actually deal with Mm. so again as a quality indicator you're reading a systematic review meta-analysis and they talk about examining conference proceedings and other and and gray gray data and other and other areas so there's an exhaustive search yes that's correct but if you're actually conducting a meta-analysis yourself and you've tried to avoid publication bias as much as possible, you can still try and identify publication bias by using something called funnel plots, which we'll look at at the next slide. There are also quantitative tests, which will give you a p-value as well, because mm. everybody loves those Everyone sorts of things. Exactly. So here we've got an example of a funnel plot. So if I just explain what the different axes are, Along the bottom, you've got your effect estimate. In this case, is our risk ratio. Mm-hmm. And on this axis, we've got essentially a measure of our precision. We've got the standard error here, but mm-hmm. it's on a reverse scale. So what that means is our larger, more precise studies are at the top of the funnel, mm-hmm. and our smaller, less precise studies are at the bottom. Now, the theory goes in that the smaller the trial you have, the more likely you are to attain extreme results at either side of the things and the more precise the study the closer it should converge on the mean effect which is our dotted Mm. line here now this is an example of a a symmetrical funnel plot and it should demonstrate this shape here so you should see a nice inverted funnel Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. now there is other causes for an asymmetric funnel plot which we will look at at the next slide but this is an example where you could be reasonably confident that there's no evidence of publication bias because mm. you've got a nice Same inverted funnel. Line, yeah. Exactly. And here we've got another example of a funnel plot. At the bottom here we have our effect estimate, which is a difference in means in this case, but the y-axis is the same. So again, that's just a measure of how large the trial is. Mm. What I we think I can see what the problem is. Yes. <laughs> So we can see that the larger, more precise studies tend to converge a bit more on this mean effect in the meta-analysis, which again is this dotted blue line. But we can see on this side we've got quite a few studies here that are smaller and less precise. But on the other side, we seem to be missing quite a few studies. Now these studies would all fall into the negative category because their difference in means is above zero. Mm -hmm. So what we could infer from this what we call asymmetric funnel plot is that there may be publication bias simply because these negative studies don't appear to exist on Mm. the other side of the axis Mm. so this is something to look for in meta-analysis and gives you a good indication of whether there may be publication bias Mm. present Mm. finally i just wanted to discuss a bit about the stages of a systematic review because like i've said for surgical trainees wanting to get involved in research I think it's a good avenue to go down because it's it's very flexible and you can easily fit it along your clinical time and dip in and out of it as you please but it doesn't cost anything it doesn't cost anything no just time exactly exactly and it's a good way to get involved in in research for people who are interested mm-hmm. how, how do you do Cochrane run lots of training courses is that right how else because it's obviously quite a complicated thing to get involved with. Yeah, I think that, so locally, um, the University of Nottingham, the I think the Schizophrenia Cochrane Group do a training session, but I think lots of groups around the country run training sessions on how to actually perform a systematic review, and they're definitely worth going to. Yeah. We've already mentioned some of these stages, but 
the first step is you have to decide what topic you want to do it on and what this might come from your own clinical practice you might identify a gap in knowledge or you might think oh I wonder what the evidence is on that and on that basis you would probably initially see if there's another um, systematic review meta-analysis on the subject but if there isn't you would then carefully construct your clinical question around the PICO format so your participants Mm. your interventions your comparisons and the outcomes you want to look at you would then register the review on the Prospero website which is a, a website run by the University of York where you can register your review and like we've discussed before, this is important so you don't start changing outcomes and inclusion and exclusion criteria as you do in the review, and this reduces bias in the review process. You then want to conduct a systematic search of both published and unpublished studies, and we've discussed the importance of searching for unpublished studies mm-hmm. within that study search, and, and like I said, that's an area that doesn't tend to be done as well. You then, from your list of studies that you've identified from these sources, want to decide which to include and exclude based on your inclusion and exclusion criteria from Mm -hmm. your PICO format question. And ideally you want to do this with two people independently because that again reduces bias. You then want to conduct your risk of bias, ideally using the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool. And again, doing this independently with someone else reduces bias. The analysis part. So... This is the bit that's initially a bit scary and where I would recommend teaming up with someone who does have experience mm. of, of systematic reviews and meta-analyses because it's quite easy to think you can... Because the, the, the review manager software from Cochrane is actually freely available to download, so mm. it's quite easy to obtain. Um, but it's quite tempting to just chuck all your numbers in there and see what comes out and then try and write something on the basis of that. But hopefully during this presentation we've discuss some of the pitfalls Mm. and problems and the fact that there needs to be a little bit more thought on how you're going to approach the analysis and how you're going to investigate publication bias and heterogeneity we've discussed via meta-regression so that's where I'd advise teaming up with someone until you're confident in Mm. that area and then the final stage would be to write it up and hopefully get it published somewhere Mm. after all that work you'd hope so exactly (laughs) that's the that's the most frustrating part So just a bit of a summary about what we've discussed. So we've discussed about the advantages of meta-analyses, but I just wanted to highlight that there are many limitations and that in actual fact meta-analyses are very poor predictors of results in large Mm. randomised controlled trials. And a useful way to think about these limitations is via the grade system which we've discussed and which we've also mentioned should be present within Cochrane abstracts and is an important thing to take into account when you're looking at the results of of a meta-analysis. So we've looked at forest plots and these can be used to identify both heterogeneity by looking at whether the confidence intervals overlap and also imprecision by the width of the confidence interval. Funnel plots can be used to identify publication bias but be aware that other causes of funnel plot asymmetry exist. And finally, bubble plots can be used to investigate heterogeneity, which could generate new clinical questions and interesting findings that warrant further research. Okay, well, that's really, really good, Brad. It's it's very, very clear. Uh, I think something that's a a really poorly understood uh, topic. Just just again, in summary, so there you are, you're sitting there in an environment, you know, you're, you're reading something or, or in an exam and you want, need to make a decision about how good the meta-analysis that you're reading is. So just give us a quick step-by-step 
things that you would see as things to look for when you when you're looking at a paper in you 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 got I don't know maybe thirty seconds just to have a quick look at it and what would you look for? Okay, I would look at the method section because that's going to tell you how the review was performed. You want to make sure that, like we said, there's a good wide range in search strategy. So lots of published databases, as well as all of that unpublished data we looked at. You then want to see how the review was conducted. So you want to make sure that two people have performed risk of bias mm -hmm. and that two people have independently assessed studies mm -hmm. against inclusion and exclusion criteria. And there's, and there's something in there about resolving differences? Yeah, so if there's quite often, if there's differences between two authors they might resolve it by discussion or they might consult a third mm. or fourth author mm. and sometimes even three authors get together and decide mm. on these things and that helps to reduce bias so that's another good quality marker. You want to make sure that the studies assessed uh, publication bias so you want to see whether they've used funnel plots and ideally quantitative tests such as something like Eggers linear regression test. Mm -hmm. You want to look at whether they've put in their analysis all of the limitations we've discussed about whether you can determine whether there's imprecision in the results and whether the results apply directly to mm -hmm. the patients that they're saying it applies to, essentially, not just the patients you've got. You want to make sure mm -hmm. that, that that marries up together. And also, if there's any evidence of heterogeneity, have they investigated this? Have they looked for reasons why results differ from each mm -hmm. other? And if they've been unable to explain that, then that again casts further doubt over the conclusions of the meta-analysis. Okay, so that's a good one. And then when looking at results, have a look at uh, how the uh, how the forest plot uh, stacks up. This would be pretty much on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, how big the uh, the diamond, the lozenge is. So the smaller the better. And then also have a look at the i squared. And again, the smaller the better with the i squared statistic. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I think I understand them now. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Brett Dolman, for taking us through that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another podcast brought to you by School of Surgery. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook at School of Surgery, on iTunes, on Podomatic at schoolofsurgery.podomatic.com, and finally, by searching School of Surgery on YouTube. Thank you very much, and see you next time.